0: Now I'm Tim Heath, so let me read scripture uh, from Exodus chapter uh, 25, moving through the book, and uh, Exodus 25, starting with verse 10. Exodus 25, verse 10, may God richly bless the reading of his word today. They shall make an ark. Of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make of it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work shall you make them, of the two ends of the mercy seat, on the two ends. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim there are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Father, I was just reflecting on my own journey. Um, amazed that you would have me do this. Um, you would take me out of uh, darkness and uh, rebellion. Uh, you would take me out of a place where I had no idea what it meant to know you. And you would uh, cause your mercy to fall upon me. You did it all. You opened my eyes. You opened my heart. You brought your beauty to invade my whole soul, and you became irresistible to me. I could do nothing less than follow you, and to you uh, is the glory. And now, Lord, in this moment, uh, we are before uh, an ancient text talking about a box, talking about a people who lived in the desert. And I pray that you will uh, move over the centuries, and you will... Speak your truth into our hearts now. Make it uh, undeniable that you are in this, in this word, in these pages, uh, in these sentences, in this moment. Father, we don't want to just hear truth. We want to experience it. We don't want to just be able to put it on a chalkboard and write about it. We want it in us. And so we ask that you would do that, that we could become different, become yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, our journey continues in the, the book of Exodus. Uh, some of you will notice we're not uh, going uh, under every rock in the desert there. Uh, we are moving quickly. Uh, not too quickly, I hope, but I hope you will find it to be a meaningful series. Now we're talking about this unusual moment when uh, God describes the building of a box that we will now will become known as the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant will be something that uh, travels with the people of Israel. In fact, the, the priests will lead as God leads and the ark will be carried and where God leads, that ark is the, the, the first place where you would see Israel moving and that ark is central because it will become the place where God meets with his people in many ways, that, mount, that mountain, Mount Sinai. Uh, remember how it was kind of organized? It was the the congregation of Israel was at the bottom, waiting. Uh, a few representatives were authorized to go up the mountain. Uh, about seventy or so representatives or leaders of Israel could go about halfway up the mountain, and then it was Moses who could go all the way up into the into the glory cloud. That's described for us in Exodus 24. It's interesting that that same image now, that mountain, those different kind of levels, the people, the representatives, and then Moses himself, and the glory at, at the top, that mountain in many ways now travels with the people, except it's turned sideways. Meaning that this tabernacle, this place of meeting, will have three places. There will be an out, outward a courtyard where the people can, can approach, There will be an inner sanctuary called the holy place where priestly representatives can go. And then there will be a most holy place, the top of the mountain, where only the high priest can go. And so it's interesting that this mountain actually is now traveling with them. As God came and and touched down upon that mountain, and he promised that he would be with his people. In fact, he has married his people. He has exchanged vows with his people. He's proven to him... Uh, to be a faithful husband, and that he has come and he's brought his bride out of out of Egypt, and now he has married her. This ark. Uh, this ark is part of a of a whole list of furniture, and you can see it there written out for you in the worship folder, and there's whole chapters devoted to different pieces of furniture. This ark is the one that I'd like to focus on today uh, as I think it was central, I think it was the most important aspect of all the furniture that God described if Israel is going to camp and tent camp God is going to go with them and he's going to tent camp as well it's a beautiful picture the ark of the covenant would be a place where God would put his feet it was a footstool in the ancient world it was very similar to what a king in the ancient world would use as their footstool very similar in size The ark has a very fancy top. You see it described there for us in Exodus 25. The the fancy top would be this one piece of gold, uh, maybe three feet long or so, and there would be two cherubim on the top, and their faces would be face down, and their wings would be touching each other, and it's all gold. Do you know that gold that you, uh, well, you can get it here, but it tends to be sort of overseas. Um, That when you think of like 22 karat gold, when you really get a really high level of gold in it, it has a yellow kind of to, uh, hue to it, doesn't it? Imagine this, br- this beautiful gold box traveling in the wilderness and the sun comes out and, and the beams of the sun hit, that, hit the top of that box as the priests are carrying it. The wilderness is sort of a, a nondescript, not, very much, not, not a lot of color. The beautiful Image of that box traveling with god's glory uh, shining off of it quite remarkable and the and the most important aspect of that box would be that place where God says, I will meet with you the mercy seat exodus twenty five twenty two I will meet with you there of course, really God only meets with one person there he meets with the high priest and that's described in Leviticus uh, chapter sixteen where the day of atonement where God uh, cleanses the whole camp. He cleanses the, the priests. He cleanses all the equipment that's used. The, the entirety of Israel is cleansed on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the priest would walk into, the high priest, walk back into that most holy place where the ark was, and it would be there that the priest would put uh, blood on top of that, that area between the between the angels. It was a holy place, it was marked off, and it had regulations. No one else was able to go back in there or supposed to go there. It's interesting that this ark was really a this tabernacle, I should say, was really a, a system of curtains, and you can see there on the page where we have the scripture. You can look back there if you would like, but there's a, there's a description of what this tent structure looked like, and it was a mobile worship center. So you literally could pick up the, the stakes, you could pick up the wood structure, and there were, there were large curtains that were uh, making certain sections in the, in, the, in the tabernacle worship, and they would travel with God uh, wherever God would lead them, and then they would set up this worship, and the, and the priests would conduct sacrifices. Inside the box would be the Ten Commandments. Also, uh, representative of God's faithfulness, two other items, uh, manna and Aaron's rod. When you think about the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are there as a continual testimony of God's standard for humanity. In that box, traveling along, is the law of God. And above the law of God is mercy. Aren't you glad? Do you get the symbolism? You see, the Old Testament is this, really, it's kind of like a, like a, a storybook. It's like a, a, a kid's coloring book. You begin to pick up the patterns. You begin to pick up the, the sense of, wait a minute, this is God with us, and God's with us through blood, and we can't keep the Ten Commandments. And isn't it interesting that right above the Ten Commandments is where God meets with us, but we can't meet with him as those who keep his law. We can meet with him as those who receive his mercy. God covers us. This is really quite extraordinary. God brings rebels into his presence, but he does it only through blood. Really interesting. Those who feel that their uncleanness defines them, those who feel shame, those who feel that they could never be covered, God says, no, I have a place to meet with you. I have a a place where you can find, you can find a place to be healed and brought near. Again, God pitches his tent among his people. The people in Israel were just like us. They were very much just like us. They had troubles and disappointments and frustrations. They had wishes for their children. They had plans. They, had, they, had a, they wished for a good future for their family. But God in the tabernacle worship addresses their biggest need. And the biggest need really was twofold. First of all, they needed forgiveness, and they needed God's presence. As I live my life, um, I have lots of needs. But um, in my category of needs, or as my hierarchy of needs, um, I don't know how high I put forgiveness in God's presence. I have other things that I would like to have. But God puts right in the middle of their tent, in, in their tent experience, in their camping experience, he puts these two things, the forgiveness of sins and his presence. It's interesting that John the gospel writer, picks up on this imagery of the tabernacle. And he writes about how God dwelt among us and tabernacled with us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John picks up on the imagery of a tabernacle, and he draws this direct parallel that God is with us through Jesus Christ. In the Bible... We have ourselves being revealed to us, our our need being revealed to us. As the Bible unfolds, it's really, really simple. We're asking this question, who can I trust? Will God be proven trustworthy? Will he come through? In tabernacle worship, you have a huge expression that God is faithful and reliable. The key characteristic of, of someone that you trust is that they're available, they listen, they don't go away when you share something that's hard or difficult. And God demonstrates that he's not going anywhere in the tabernacle worship. I was thinking about the kinds of people who might be struggling in, in Israel as they're traveling through the wilderness. They're people just like you and me. Um, I was thinking about someone who may struggle with with sleeping through the night, and uh, they wake up in the middle of the night, uh, they peek through their their tent opening, and they stare and they see the, the tabernacle structure, this tent where God lives. They see the pillar of fire, this huge nightlight, and it's there. They think about their children, they think about their future, they think about what they'd like out of life. They wonder why they can't sleep. They see, this, they see this tent, it's still there. They wonder, who cares? And then they're just looking at that tent. They're peeking through the tent, night after night, month after month, and God's still there. They reflect on this, and you know they realize that God has entered their world. God has not stayed on that mountain, but he's come down among them. And there are deep and serious things, things that are deeply broken and frustrating. A child has a fever, and you have no way of knowing if they're going to make it through the night. And you peer through the the opening in your tent, and you see that tabernacle structure. Perhaps you see some smoke rising from the remains of an offering earlier in the day. This is the kind of thing that God is doing is that he is communicating to us that he is trustworthy. There's a pattern developing. This is not just for troubled people, but this is for all of us. Who do you really talk to? Who do you really trust? In the tabernacle, we're finding all the core qualities of Jesus Christ. God comes and pitches his tent among displaced people. Jesus comes and pitches his tent in human form among displaced people. You see, all of us born in Adam are displaced people. We were booted out of the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle curtains were filled with images of cherubim or angels. And that was for a reason. Especially when the high priest would go back and back into the back sections of the the tabernacle, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And to get there, he would have to move a curtain. And on that curtain would be images of angels. That reminds us of Genesis 3, when God banishes man, makes him a displaced person, and angels with flaming swords are preventing man from going back into the Garden of Eden. The tabernacle... Is an expression of God that the Garden of Eden is coming back. God is not going to let the curse that's fallen upon man be the final word about man. And what is the core of the curse? We are outside of God's presence. Now, when you read in the New Testament, you, it's clear that the tabernacle is replaced by Jesus Christ. Uh, The tabernacle lasts about 400 years or so, and then David just gets tired of it, and he says, I want to build you a temple like the the other nations have for their gods. I want to build you a great temple, and of course Solomon is the one who builds the temple. But when we think about the tabernacle, it is communicating in a great way what it's like to know that God is supplying your deepest needs David would write his psalms, and he would be very much aware of tabernacle worship. And I want to read this to you, and I want you to see of what you know of the tabernacle up to this point. God pitches his tent among displaced people. God is willing to be with sinners, allow them to approach his uh, approach him through blood. Listen to this. Where did David get these ideas? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. God leads him? Where did he get that idea of God's leading? He must have seen it in the tabernacle worship. He restores my soul. How does David know that? This is before Christ walked this earth. David is confident that God is willing to restore his soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Do you know that was one of the practical implications of having God with, with them? God was a warrior with them, God was leading them into war. And David's, David picks up on this as he is observing tabernacle worship, and he picks up on the fact that God, with them through the tabernacle worship, they should, he should fear no evil. Why should he fear no evil? It says, For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The tabernacle worship included a table, an altar. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Interesting, David would write that, knowing full well that only the high priest could really dwell in God's presence. David says, oh no, this is true for all of us. David understood that the tabernacle was pointing to the final permanent dwelling of God that everyone would enjoy through Jesus Christ. So, in many ways, the tabernacle worship is God setting up Himself as a, as a pacemaker, as a pace setter, I should say. God is setting the pace, and here's what's going on. God is coming to people, and He's ministering to them, and He's meeting their needs in order that they would become ministers themselves. God removed every obstacle from, their, from people that they might worship Him. God, where the law is threatening us, And the law is carried inside that box. God is reminding sinners constantly, you can approach me. Much of the tabernacle worship is a warning to sinners, stay away, back off, don't come near. But there's also aspects of it that say, but I can allow you to come near, and I can know you, and I'm willing to know you. Of course, in John's gospel, we have the ultimate and final tabernacle, Jesus became flesh the eternal became embodied the tabernacle of Exodus is setting up how the story will culminate God is going to reverse the curse man will be able to enter into God's presence not just momentarily not just on the day of atonement but forever the culmination of John's prologue in John chapter 1 the word became flesh and pitched his tent full of grace and truth. God said, here, I will meet with you. I will meet with you in my son. And he came to touch the needy. He came to be touched by the needy, to associate with the lowly. He was not a temporary tent. He was so confident that he would be a dwelling for people that he said in John chapter two, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up. All of us long for permanence. And in Jesus Christ, we have the ultimate final permanence. He rose again that he would be a permanent way for us to reach the Father's resources of love. So when people offered sacrifices in the tabernacle and they brought their lambs or they they brought their animals, what they were really saying is, this should happen to me. This should happen to me. But the whole thing is, it's not going to happen to you. The whole message is, God is willing that another would replace you. And as you gave up one of your best sheep, the message was sent to you loud and clear. Forgiveness is, forgiveness is costly. God is saying, I'm willing to forgive I'm willing to come near. I'm willing to embrace you. Do you know what we do at this moment right now? We sort of say, nah, Uh, really, really? You mean who I really am? Those deep aspects of weakness that I feel? In fact, for for many of us, I would guess that it is our weaknesses that are keeping us from really boldly, boldly approaching our God. We're sure that God just, well, he just can't quite accept me with all those failings and all that, you know, I'm just not surrendered enough, I'm not dedicated enough, I'm not following hard enough. I just don't think he can really, really receive me and accept me. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the final high priest, and what he does is he doesn't go into a tabernacle like the old priests used to do. He goes up into heaven. He presents himself before his heavenly father's throne, and it's there that he applies his own blood. The tabernacle was always a picture of what, it's, what it means to come into God's presence in heaven. And the point of, of Hebrews chapter 4 when it describes Jesus as our high priest it's saying that we can come boldly to that throne of grace. Do you feel that you're distant from God? Do you feel like he can't connect with you? Do you feel like he can't know you? Do you feel again like you're just not doing your part of it? Well, the truth is it's right at these moments when we, most feel, when we feel most weak and, um, and feeling shameful, that we want to hide from God. And it's right here that the New Testament says, "No, don't hide from God. Move toward him because he is a compassionate high priest." And in Hebrews 4:14 we have these words, "We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses." how do we know that God understands us? Just like they understood back then when God pitched his tent in the desert, they must have thought, you know, he has some understanding of what it's like to to travel in the desert because he's with us. That would be a pretty simple conclusion. With Jesus, we now are instructed, he knows what it's like to travel in our skin, yet without sin. In Hebrews 4.14, we hear that He is a high priest, and he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect, he was tempted as we are. So was Jesus tempted to despair? The answer is yes. Was Jesus tempted to give up? The answer is yes. Was Jesus bothered by human frailty and human sin and and human inconsistencies? The answer is yes. Yes. And what we find, though, is that God is not coming to just prove how much we fail and then sort of departs and says, yeah, I I knew it. All I did was it was an exploratory mission to find out for sure how people fail. But it was a mission whereby he would become our high priest and represent us and represent our weaknesses. God said to Israel in the wilderness, I'm willing to tent camp with you. In Jesus Christ, he says, I'm willing to be with you forever. And here is my son. I identify with you as a wandering, displaced people, but I want to bring you in. I want to bring you into my presence, where my presence is no longer a threat to you, but it is a joy. It is a place where you can feel safe. In Jesus, the God of the universe is willing to tent camp again, and he dwelt among us as he embodied His. In his flesh, a tabernacle like our bodies. In that body, he was hit with every emotion and every temptation to give up. Through Jesus Christ, God made the law of God no longer able to accuse us. Jesus went into the Holy of Holies in God's presence presented his own blood there, and you know that at the moment he died, the veil that separated sinners from God in the temple in Jerusalem was torn asunder. Who would have thought that God would be willing to sympathize and enter into our weakness? God is not willing that we would stay outside of the courtyard, in the courtyard. He wants us to come in. In fact, we are told Because of our high priest, we are to approach God's throne. The tabernacle was God's throne. We are to approach God's throne with boldness. That is a command in scripture. Meaning we're to grasp so thoroughly what Jesus has done for us that we know we can obtain mercy and we can find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4. You see, it's not because we were strong and able to make ourselves presentable to God that God came and said, oh, I'm going to hang around you because you are now acceptable. He came because we were banished and displaced and he's willing to bring us in. So, what's remarkable is this. The one place you never thought you could go The one place only Moses was authorized to go was the top of the mountain. The one place you never thought you could go where the high priest was authorized to go was that holy of holies. The communication was always, well, you're on the outside, and that's where you belong, but not in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we find that God is willing that we would actually enter in to the very presence of God and experience his glory forever and ever. Now, what happens here is this, and here's one practical takeaway for us, and then I'm I'm done. What God does is he becomes a pace setter for us in this way, for ministry. God sets the pace in tabernacle worship. I'm able to move towards sinners. In Christ, I'm able to move towards sinners. For us in the church, we now, this gospel love becomes incarnate in us and we move towards sinners. The same pattern is underway. The Spirit of God is actively moving in you with the same movement from heaven to earth and then into our hearts. The same movement is underway right now. So, for us, get involved in ministry. If this is all true, if there was an offering placed on the mercy seat in heaven, Where the law of God now no longer accuses you. If this is really true, where you have a high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses, you can always come to him with weaknesses. It's okay. It doesn't disqualify you from embodying his love and incarnating his love in ministry. We should be thinking as a church if this love is so good, how can I move in the movement of God toward ministry? how can I be moving toward the world like God moves toward the world? And this is our opportunity to be empowered by the grace of God, not by guilt, not by obligation, but by grace. To look through the tent opening at night and to see the presence of God there and to know he's not going to leave you And to know that nothing disqualifies you because the blood is effective. It really, really worked. He pitched his tent among us, but it was a permanent act. And now, God dwells among us now. We, in many ways, are his temple. In many ways, we are the gathering place of God. Where two or three are gathered together, there I am in their midst. It's happening right now. God is indwelling us by his spirit in order to move us into his world that he has said he loves. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of the extraordinary thing that happened when your son took on human flesh. May we never grow tired of hearing about that. Father, thank you that we have indeed a high priest who in his body presented himself before your mercy seat. We thank you that you have now covered our shame and you have brought us in. We thank you for your good gospel. May it be the power that is demonstrated in ministry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.